0: Be seated. (laughs) I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings and chapter 9. Today we're going to be reading uh, verse 10 through to the end of the chapter. Just to remind you of where we are in the Word of God Um, God has established David's son Solomon on the throne. And Solomon uh, had been asked by the Lord what gift he wanted and of course he asked for wisdom and he was given great wisdom he was he became the wisest man on earth because of god's love to him and uh, his love especially for his father david solomon was established and his kingdom thrived but unfortunately as we shall see prosperity as uh, it so often is was in many senses the undoing of solomon it's one thing to be wise And it is another thing entirely to act in accord with what you know to be wise. Many a wise man has made some very, very foolish choices because he has instead acted according to his desires rather than what he knows is right. And unfortunately, we're going to see as we go on in Solomon's life that happening. But at this point in time, we are going to see uh, the United Kingdom of Israel under Solomon at its pinnacle and a description of some of that prosperity. But we'll talk about the effects of that prosperity on their kingdom. But before we do that, let us turn to the Lord who gave us this word, and let's ask for his help. God our Father, I do pray that today, as we read your word, we would take these things to heart. Although we live thousands of years removed from uh, the events that we're about to read about, and although we dig up uh, the, uh, the remains of the, of the great civilization uh, that the Israelites had at this point, uh, and see Oh, Lord, what became of it. We know, oh, Lord, that they were men with feet of clay just like us. We, they were men who were so susceptible to affluence, so susceptible to a desire for things. And, Lord, surely that captivates our heart as well. Well, Lord, help us then to learn uh, from what has gone before. Our spiritual forebears, Lord, uh, they were tripped and they stumbled over certain things. Help us to see those things clearly so that we are not tripped and we do not stumble. Help us then to grow in grace. Oh Lord, help us to hear your voice. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 9 and starting with verse 10. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Now it happened at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, Hiram, the king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress and gold as much as he desired. That king Solomon then gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Then Hiram went from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, but they did not please him. So he said, what kind of cities are these which you have given me, my brother? And he called them the land of Kabul, as they are to this day. Then Hiram sent the king 120 talents of gold. And this is the reason for the labor force which King Solomon raised to build the house of the Lord, his own house, the Mulo the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezer and burned it with fire, had killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. And Solomon built Gezer, Lower Beth Horon, Baalath, and Tadmor in the wilderness in the land of Judah. All the storage cities that Solomon had, cities for his chariots and cities for his ca- uh, cavalry, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. All the people who were left of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, who were not of the children of Israel, that is, their descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel had not been able to destroy completely. From these, Solomon raised forced labor, as it is to this day. But of the children of Israel, Solomon made no forced laborers, because they were men of war, and his servants, his officers, his captains, commanders of his chariots, and his cavalry. Others were chiefs of the officials who were over Solomon's work, 550 who ruled over the people who did the work, but Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house, which Solomon had built for her. Then he built the Mulo. Now, three times a year, Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar, which he had built for the Lord. And he burned incense with them on the altar that was before the Lord. So he finished the temple. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Elaf, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. Then Hiram sent his servants with the fleet seamen who knew the sea to work with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and acquired 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All of us, if we are asked, uh, could probably mention things that, uh, although we know we're supposed to be anxious for nothing, to give our concerns to the Lord, that there are things that concern us. <laughs> things that are constantly on our mind, perhaps. Uh, they are issues uh, over which we fret uh, that are never far from from our thoughts, Uh, there are things like that in our jobs, in our school, in our marriage, Uh, wherever we are, there are concerns that we have, things that we wish were changed and improved and so on, problems. But I want you to take a moment and turn uh, from personal issues and your thoughts about work and, and jobs and so on and think about the nation and the issues it faces and try to isolate, if you will, the issue that is at the very top of that list for you, the thing that most concerns you in the United States as a general topic. Now, when Americans were asked in poll after poll uh, prior to the recent election what their top issue was, nine out of ten Americans indicated that it was the economy and inflation. Most Americans indicated by their answer that prosperity, or specifically a lack thereof, and an increasing lack thereof, was what they considered most important. But let me ask you, is prosperity and the prosperity of the nation the most important issue to that nation, or indeed to any nation? Let me simply ask you this. If America had high employment, had low inflation, it had a good trade balance, a robust stock market, a strong gross domestic product. Would everything be fine? Would you say the nation is fixed? It's perfect. I'm, I, I'm fine now. Would that be enough? I dare say it would not. I, 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 I hate to say that the economy and inflation aren't anywhere near my top ten. Um, I won't bug you with my my own particular top ten list right now, but it, it is not enough simply to be prosperous, to say that the nation is now on the right track and will improve. Does historically great prosperity lead to a strong and moral nation? Well, interestingly enough, it seems like as empires have prospered, they have actually become morally weaker. They have actually become less robust, less able to teach their their children well, to go in the right direction, and certainly less faithful to God. Uh, Edward Gibbon, in his uh, his famous History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which is a, a huge book. I read it before I became a Christian. I didn't really understand the Christian issues there. Gibbon wasn't a Christian himself. In fact, he didn't particularly like Christianity, but he understood the role of religion within an empire and within a country. He actually identified the five factors that led to the decline of Rome in his mind. And all of them occurred while Rome was still in a prosperous condition. A lack of money was not one of the reasons for their decline. It was actually prosperity in most cases that worked against them. The five things that he identified were this. First the rapid increase of divorce with the undermining of the sanctity of the home, which is the basis of society, the family falling apart. Second, higher and higher taxes and the spending of public money on bread and circuses. Third, the mad craze for pleasure, sports becoming every year more exciting and more brutal. The Romans were literally entertaining themselves to death. Fourth, the building of gigantic armies to fight external enemies when the most deadly enemy, the decadence of the people, lay within. And fifth, the decay of religion, faith fading into mere form, or what we would call nominalism, a faith in name only, losing touch with life and becoming impotent to guide it. And these five factors have cropped up again and again in not just pagan societies, but in Christian nations as well. Cotton Mather uh, in the early uh, 1700s was reflecting on how far New England society had declined from the original uh, rather um, fervent piety of the original pilgrim forefathers. He was looking at a society that was no longer zealous for God, a society in which apostasy was breaking out, in which in fact some of the places where their ministers were being educated were beginning to move towards deism and rationalism and uh, the dread Arminianism was creeping in as well. And he asked himself, why is this happening? Uh, and in his uh, Magnolia Christi Americana, which is an ecclesiastical history of the United States, he wrote, their chief hazard and symptom of degeneracy is in the verification of that old observation. Religion brought forth prosperity and the daughter destroyed the mother. It was God who had prospered them. But their prosperity became the idol that they abandoned God for. Instead of worshiping the creator and desiring after him and desiring to serve him, they began to desire more the things that he gave them, the things of this present fleeting life. Now, 1 Kings, as we saw last week, was written partly to explain why it was that Israel had declined. The first people reading this book would have been at a time when Babylon was about to take over the nation. We believe Jeremiah was the uh, primary author of this. And there are lots of notes that tell us that Babylon has not yet taken the nation. One of the things that we see is he'll point out something, that is the author, and he'll say, as it is to this day, indicating that they still have a kingdom in Judah, but that that kingdom is in terrible condition. They are about to be overwhelmed by Babylon. And the author here is giving us a transition point. He's talking about the United Kingdom. All the tribes are still together under Solomon. So it's 12 tribes united, not 10 tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. And he's talking about this United Kingdom at the peak of its prosperity 20 years into Solomon's reign. Israel has everything that the Israelites probably wanted at this point in time. They have peace. Her rivals are subdued. The palace of the king has been finished. The temple has been built. They have that central place for worship that all the tribes can come up to. And they have, in one sense, beneficial alliances with their primary threats, Tyre to the north and Egypt to the south. And also, they have a favorable balance of trade They're even moving into markets that they had never before entered into, getting gold from Ophir, trading with them. These are, however, their last days, believe it or not, as a prosperous and united country. And the prophetic author wants us to understand that their very prosperity was actually leading to some of their problems. It was the reason why they had made so many serious compromises in their faithfulness to the same God who had watched over and prospered them. So he takes us through a a list of the things that were going on. First he points us to the foreign policy and he talks about the treaty with Hiram of Tyre. That had held... Tyre had continued to provide Solomon with the raw materials that he needed to build up his kingdom. And uh, you remember Solomon had originally said to Tyre, well, we'll provide you with laborers, we'll provide you with food, we'll provide you with oil, and so on. But it seems that uh, eventually uh, it became difficult to provide them with as much food and oil, so he sent uh, instead 20 cities. He gave Hiram 20 cities to the north on his border. These would have been cities in the land of Galilee. That is the region around the Sea of Galilee, the area around Nazareth where Jesus uh, grew up, just south of Lebanon. Solomon, in doing so, was clearly being shrewd. He gave him 20 cities, but these cities were not prosperous or productive. Hiram decides to go on a tour, you know, to, to check out these cities that he has been given by his brother Solomon, and uh, he tours them, and he essentially says, wow, these, these, this is ramshackle. These places aren't productive. They're not gonna add to the wealth of my kingdom. These places are Kabul, meaning worthless. Incidentally, I looked it up. The, the name of the city in Afghanistan is not actually related directly to the name worthless, but it, uh, <laughs> it is, um, uh, well, let's not dwell on that. Moving on then. Uh, <laughs> But he described the city uh, in Hebrew as, as worthless. It, it had no value to him whatsoever. But nonetheless, Solomon had given it to him, and he kept his part of the bargain, giving him 120 talents of gold, to give you some idea of how much that is. A talent is calculated to have weighed about 70.4 pounds. And using that equivalent and the current price for gold... One can calculate that Hiram's gift, at the very minimum, was about $50 million worth of gold uh, by our standards, probably quite a bit more than that. But aside from the question of whether or not Solomon, and I want you to see this, whether or not Solomon should have been so shrewd in his business dealings, even with a pagan king, in essence, ripping him off, uh, what on earth was he doing giving cities in Israel to the king of a pagan nation? remember the Lord had had brought them in had said this is your promised land and he had set the boundaries for the for the nation they had never really actually encompassed all of the boundaries that the Lord had said would be theirs but in giving away this land he was giving away some of the land that the Lord had given in perpetuity to the tribes of Israel to a pagan king This is something that he did out of pragmatism, but it is not something that was right. And it indicated to him that gold was more valuable than the land that the Lord had given to the people of Israel. By itself, he looked at it and he said, well, it's just so much dust, so many mud huts and and poor agriculture and, and things like that. Not of much value. But the land that the Lord had given them was inherently valuable because the Lord had given it to them. It was the promised land, the land of his forefathers. And he was treating it as a small thing. Then we have, of course, the building projects. And a lot of attention is given to them. We're given interesting information, for instance, about the city of Gezer. Gezer was one of the, uh, the cities that was actually given by God to the Levites. It was within the dominion of the tribe of Ephraim. But they had never been able to conquer it. And the Philistines and their Canaanite vassals were in control of the city when Solomon began his reign. So Pharaoh decides that his present, his wedding present uh, to Solomon uh, is that he will destroy this city and he will hand it over to Solomon. Unfortunately, he destroys the city. He burns it with fire. So he essentially gives him rubble and uh, he has to rebuild that himself. Solomon's building projects, though, we see that they were geared primarily to create a defensible kingdom. They were geared so that anybody invading them would have a hard time conquering the city, especially quickly. Archaeology uh, proves that, incidentally. The uh, various places that are mentioned, wherever they've done archaeological digs, they do find evidence of the, the kind of structures that are spoken about in 1 Kings 9. So uh, the more incidentally that you dig in uh, Israel uh, and its environs, the more the Bible is proven to be true. It's interesting. I was, uh, was talking about this uh, in, in Africa, the more uh, that they dig, the more evidence. Uh, it, it's not that it proves that the Bible is true. Uh, the more that archaeology simply shows that uh, what we have always known uh, to be true is in fact true. It's quite a contrast to, say, the Book of Mormon uh, where uh, they talk about this great Mesoamerican culture made up of uh, supposedly Israelite tribes that had come to the United States or what would become the United States, North America. But whenever (coughs) you dig where these great battles took place supposedly according to Mormonism, we find no archaeological evidence. That's because it's not true. But these things happened, and so we do find archaeological evidence of it. Um, And it's clear that uh, King Solomon desired to leave a strong and defensible kingdom to all of his heirs. He wanted them to be able to fight off their enemies. And any invasion from the north, because that was where trouble was really brewing at this point in time, uh, that they would be able to fight that off. He also entered into alliances that obviously he hoped would hold and would keep back the Egyptian superpower and also make sure that they had good relations with Tyre, who would provide them with kind of a speed bump for anybody coming from the north uh, in a war. In addition, he also built fortifications within Jerusalem, he improved the city. The city actually, uh, there was originally King David's city and then he had already built the temple on the Temple Mount and originally, uh, because you remember Jerusalem is built in the mountains, there was kind of a gap between the old city and the temple. He built, uh, he essentially filled in the space between the two mountains so that it became one contiguous city. So you could go all the way from the king's palace, or rather, all the way from King David's city to the king's palace, which was built near the, uh, the temple. Incidentally... Um, Uh, Recently, a little while ago, um, it was within uh, a decade or two, and I wish I I had it at the front of my mind and then it fell apart, but um, uh, one of Israel's uh, preeminent archaeologists actually found uh, David's palace by digging where the Bible said David's palace was, and she got in trouble for that because apparently you're not supposed to use the Bible as a map for digging in archaeology. That's a no-no. You might actually get people to believe the Bible's true, and that would be bad, we know, right? Anyway, moving on. In addition to uh, that uh, building of... uh, That's probably what the Milo was, the connection between the two. Uh, There was also the addition of towers to the wall, fortresses and cities and chariot cities and store cities and so on. All of these things designed to make Jerusalem a very defensible city. So they would be able to hold out for as long as possible until help came. Uh, Russell Dilday notes, uh, for example... The chariot city of Megiddo was strategically located at the entrance to the plain of Jezreel on the trunk highway from the Euphrates to the Nile. I visited the archaeological excavation of this ancient city where sections of the fortifications from Solomon's day can still be seen. Stables, chariot stalls, barracks, and stone walls all give evidence of the wise military planning that elevated Israel to prominence as a world power in this period. So far, so good, right? He's building a strong nation with strong defenses and a massive army. But in doing this, he was actually going against God's commands. God specifically had wanted his people to depend upon him. And he had shown them time and time again that when he was with them, it didn't matter how small their army was. When God was with them, 300 men could overcome a mighty horde of hundreds of thousands. But when he wasn't with them, they could be wrecked by a tiny city like AI. And he had done that again and again. But here we see Solomon putting his trust in princes and armies and multiplying chariots and horses. This actually went against uh, God's express commands to kings. It contravenes Deuteronomy uh, 17, 17:16 and, uh, and 17, which reads, but he shall not multiply horses for himself nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. What was it that uh, Solomon, we see uh, multiplying uh, constantly the three biggies there that God had said, don't do this. So he multiplies horses and chariots, he multiplies wives, and he multiplies gold. And the Lord knew that when this happened, it would turn his heart away from him. Well, additionally, we have the building of a separate palace for Pharaoh's daughter. That was necessitated because he'd married Pharaoh's daughter. And he didn't want her, and this should have been a warning, he didn't want her profane foot defiling the places where the ark had been. So far, so good. But the problem is, eventually, he would be building houses of worship for Pharaoh's daughter so that he and she could together worship her false gods, the gods of Egypt, and then he would do so for his other foreign wives, so that eventually King Solomon, who started out so well, would be worshiping even Chemosh, the abomination of uh, the Edomites and so on, and it would be uh, a terrible, terrible thing when syncretism had invaded Jerusalem. There was a cost also to all of this, uh, this building and so on. Uh, they had to raise a, a labor force. It was made up mostly of Canaanite slaves. That's a problem as well. What was supposed to happen to the Canaanites? They were supposed to be expelled from the land. Instead, now, they're using them as slave labor. Uh, also, he took men from the tribes. Now, the men from the tribes were, per, uh, were generally used uh, in the military, but according to First Kings 5, as we've already read, they were put on a rotating schedule of four months of, of labor. Now, they weren't slaves, but they had to labor in the same way that uh, some men are forced into the military in places like South Korea. They have to serve a certain amount of time, 18 months, I believe it is, in, uh, in South Korea. Here, they would be either contracted to go into the military or they would be forced to labor on his building projects. And there were also high taxes to pay for these things. The trade that they were entering into wasn't enough by itself. It had to be supplemented by direct taxation of the tribes, and it was heavy indeed. And we know from what happens in a little while that the tribes were becoming more and more resentful, especially those that were furthest away from Jerusalem and began to think, wait a minute, you're favoring Judah, your own particular tribe. So tribal resentment was beginning to build up, and the people, like the American people who were thousands of miles away from parliament, resented the taxes that were imposed upon them by rulers far away, even though they were far lower than the taxes actually that Solomon was imposing upon his own people. Admittedly, uh, Solomon does not forget his religious duties. He does not become irreligious at this point. He is still, we could say, going to church. He is going to the temple, which is conveniently very close to his palace. They're very nearby and we are told that three times a year He offered great sacrifices to the Lord. That would have been uh, the three uh, festivals that every Israelite man was supposed to go up to every year. They were the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. They had to uh, participate in that. Passover was, of course, the most important of all of those, but uh, they were supposed to be uh, constantly going to the temple. And finally, we see he has success in his foreign trade. Now, the Israelites were not a shipbuilding people. They were not a maritime people. But Hiram, king of Tyre, they were Phoenicians, and they were the, uh, they were the premier shipbuilding and sailing people. So use, uh, they use the uh, Israelites' resources, their wood and so on, and they build ships. They show them how to do that, and then their sailors sail them, and they trade with uh, Ophir, which was probably quite a good distance away. So they trade their finished goods. They probably would have traded horses and chariots from Egypt as well, and, and they bring in so much gold that silver becomes almost worthless in the kingdom. But having received this this long list of the different signs of the prosperity of the kingdom and so on and it being at its high point, uh, and I'm sure people at the time would have looked around and said, it's never been so good. We have been so greatly blessed. Now let's work on being more blessed. How are we going to do that? Let's trade more. Let's have larger armies. Let's continue to build and tax and marry and so on. But all of these alliances and marriages and compromises and taxes and and building of giant standing armies, all of these things were gradually separating Solomon from his faith in the Lord and his dependence upon him. And we're obviously making him larger and larger in his own eyes and the Lord less and less important. So we don't see full-blown apostasy, but what we're being warned is this is the way that we move towards apostasy. This is what gets us on the road to decline. The other things were getting larger, but faith was becoming smaller, becoming nominal. Now, I have seen this pattern, and I must warn you, I've seen this happen uh, in the children of the church. I don't mean just this church, I mean the church generally, okay? often the devil knows that he can't get a child raised in uh, a strong reformed household to slip by setting in front of them the same things that the world goes after immediately. It's not going to be drugs and alcohol, uh, you know, uh, rock and roll and parties uh, that he's going to be using to get them to slip. What will he set before them? He'll set before them the less good. He'll set prosperity before them. I watched as um, one... Uh, young woman. Um, she told her parents uh, that she, they, you know, they wanted to make sure she was going to church. Yes, they found a church for her. She continued to go to church. And then uh, they inquired, um, are you going to the evening service? Oh, no, no, I go to a study group. Uh, we have a group that gets together on Sunday. A lot of our tests are on Monday. Uh, and I want to do well. I want to do really well. And I know academics are so important to you. And I was afraid my grades were going to slip if I didn't. So I spent Sunday evening studying with them. And then Sunday evening became Sunday morning. And gradually, academics took over. Now, her grades were good. They were really good. And she began to move into an academic uh, (coughs) corridor, so to speak. But her love for the Lord all the time was declining. And what was becoming her idol was academic performance, and people would say, you know, this is the, the problem. The world looks at that, and they pat you on the shoulder, and they say, good job. And they say to your parents, that's, you've got such an amazing scholar there. And at the end of the day, that's all they are, secular scholars. And they are very well trained in, in whatever field that they're in, but their love for the Lord has disappeared. And that can happen. And it doesn't need to be academics. It can be, for instance, I've watched the same thing happen with young men who've gone into the military and who have sacrificed their faith on the altar of career. Now, it does not have to be that way. I have seen Christians in academics. I have seen Christians in the military serving the Lord and never forgetting that their vocation is secondary to their faith. I'll give you just one, one anecdote uh, of, uh, of an example of that, uh, and I've seen this one happen uh, more often than not. Generally speaking, it's been my experience that senior officers, and I apologize to the senior officers here, reek of senior officer, if I can put it that way. You know, If you were to, uh, to take all of their badges and, and so on, the, the fruit salad off their chest and all marks of rank and so on, and line them up, and mix in, uh, you know, enlisted and so on, you'd still be able to pick them out, generally speaking, if you had long enough to talk to them. Um, and I'm probably getting in terrible trouble here, but moving on. Uh, there's just, uh, with secular people in particular, they just begin to imbibe a sense of their own importance. And even if they're humble, it begins to radiate from them. With Christians, though, I have seen this happen as well. Men from our church who have been enlisted have gone to activities on post and they don't serve with these men and they're not aware of, of what their rank is. And they meet with them at church and uh, those men interact with them and they are their friends and they speak to them easily. And they are brothers in Christ and they depend upon them. They ask them for prayer. And then they meet them at something happening on post and they suddenly realize, oh. <laughs> I'm just a specialist and he's a lieutenant colonel or something like that. And suddenly there's this weirdness, but then the fellow who is Christian and humble will essentially reach in and say, I'm still your brother in Christ. We're still on the same level before the Lord. We may have different rank. We may answer to different people and have different jobs, But ultimately, we're still both sinners saved by grace. And I love you as my brother in Christ. And so there's no weirdness between them. That's a wonderful thing to see. And it doesn't have to be the military. It can be all sorts of different things where men are not, and women as well, are not preoccupied by the things of this world. And so they don't become self-important and puffed up in their own eyes. And they serve the Lord to the best of their ability, wherever they are, both in the army or outside of it, in academics, in work, and so on. And these are men who are approachable and women who are approachable, and they speak of the Lord. They never forget where they were ultimately when God found them. And I would encourage you to have that kind of humble heart as well. No matter how far the Lord elevates you, don't let prosperity destroy you. And certainly do not make the pursuit of power and money and influence overcome your desire to serve the Lord, and certainly never let it overcome your remembrance that you were saved by grace, and that it was dual imputation, as we discussed, that made all the difference. The Lord cleansing you of your sins, taking them away, and the Lord giving you his righteousness. Solomon forgot that. He remembered it, we hope, at the end. If you read Ecclesiastes, you see how he tried to find contentment in all of the things that the world could give, every, every pursuit, every vanity, as he puts it. And Ecclesiastes, therefore, is filled with that resounding refrain again and again and again, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. I tried this, I found it was vanity. I tried power, I found it was vanity. I, found, I tried music and, uh, and leisure pursuits, found that was vain as well. I found that all of these things don't fulfill. And then finally, at the end of the book, just when you think all is lost in, in Ecclesiastes 12, suddenly you hear his refrain, obviously written near the end of his own life, remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. And he points you back to the Lord before it's too late. And so he says in verse 6 of Chapter 12. Remember your Creator before the silver cord is loosed, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered in the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Now, brothers and sisters, that is something that we need to keep in mind as well that all of the things in the world don't avail us anything when it comes time to die. At the end of our lives, The very fact that we own so many things, that we had so many honors and titles given to us, uh, becomes empty, becomes vain, worthless. There's a parallel, interestingly enough, and I'm going to leave you with these words of Paul. A parallel in um, 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul is talking about the church and how it was built up and how there was so much vying for for status within the church and how sects were growing up. I am of Apollos, I am of Peter, I am of Paul. They were all now, they were striving to become the preeminent uh, part of the church. And he points out that none of them actually did anything, that they were all building on the only foundation, which was the foundation left by Christ. And so he writes this to them in 1 Corinthians 3 9. I would encourage you to turn there if you can. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, starting with verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building according to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master. Builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seeks to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollo or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God. Kistemacher makes a comment on that idea of building upon the foundation with wood and hay and stubble that I think is very relevant to this idea that prosperity uh, can often destroy our faith. He writes this, however, Paul uses the imagery to show what people do with God's revelation in Jesus Christ. Some live by that word, apply it to their daily lives and develop spiritually as they seek to edify themselves and fellow believers. These people are vitally interested in sound doctrine and the pure preaching of God's word. They build their spiritual houses with the precious metals and stones of the living word. Others lead shallow lives with a veneer of Christianity. They seem to be satisfied with living in ordinary houses made of wood, hay, and straw. Brothers and sisters, let me set this before you. What are you building? And what are you building with? We have seen that there's no other foundation that can be laid except the foundation of Jesus Christ. That's the only stable foundation for a life, for a household. Jesus himself told us in his parable of the the two buildings that if we hear what he says and put it into effect, we're building on solid rock. But if we don't, we're building on sand and eventually the storms of life will wash it away. But the question is, what do we build on that particular foundation? If we're wise, we will build with an eye on eternity. We will build spiritually thinking. We will think of the things that are to come and we will act accordingly we'll put our faith and our trust in Christ and we'll strive to build up the kingdom and the family of God that we're part of, if we're wise. If we're not, we'll follow unfortunately the same pattern that Solomon did. We'll follow after the things of the world, we'll follow after the pleasures, we'll follow after the power, we'll follow after the money, we'll follow, we'll make that our heart idle and ultimately we'll find that we've taken the foundation of Christ and we've built something worthless on top of it, something that we'll not endure something that will ultimately be burned up. Therefore, I would encourage you now, especially if you're young, certainly if you're already old, think, what have I built? What am I building? And what should I be striving for? Should I be striving to leave to my posterity, prosperity in the human sense? Or should I be striving to leave for my family, for my posterity? a heritage of faith that will carry them through till the Lord returns. I hope it's the second that you turn your eyes towards. And remember, you can be engaged in any vocation on earth and still keep the Lord number one. There are a few that that, that's not possible, prostitution, thievery, things like that. But certainly most of the things that men and women enter into and make their jobs, their vocation, we can serve the Lord in them. And I pray that you would. Serve him with diligence and make building his kingdom in your own home your number one priority. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, I do pray now, Lord, that you would help us to see that striving after the things of this present life are vain, that ultimately they come to nothing, and that ultimately these are resources that you've put into our hands in order that we might glorify you. Help us, O oh Lord, therefore, to use the talents that You've given us for the increase of the kingdom. Let us invest them wisely, thinking of the true heritage that we want to leave behind for our children. Do they want? Do we want them to simply remember us as the people who made a lot of money, or the people who rose high in the ranks, either of the corporate world or the military or academics, or do they want, or do we want them to remember us as godly, as humble? as kind, as loving and showing the love of Christ to all who are around us. May it be that we leave behind that kind of testimony, that people who know us would have seen the reflection of Christ in us. He the sun, we the moon. Oh Lord, I do pray that that is how we would be remembered when it is our time to enter into glory.